On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about your money. There has been a change, well, we believe anyway, with the White House, and there is theoretically a vaccine coming now for COVID. How does this affect the stock market and your retirement funds, your RSPs, your stocks, whatever else? We'll talk about that one. We're also talking about Alex Trebek, who passed away on the weekend. Pete Diakowski, former Ticat, Canada's smartest man winner, former political candidate and Jeopardy contestant joins us to talk about that. And then Don Robertson will join us to talk about Howie Meeker and the Masters and whether or not the Leafs should start trying to play with two forwards and three defensemen, just because. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. You've probably heard a lot of talk in the last few days. If you haven't, you will. Now that the U.S. election seems to be resolved, or most people think it's resolved, about what all of this is going to mean for the stock market. And by extension, your investments, your retirement plan, because I do believe that most people listening are either planning for that day, stocking some money away somewhere, or they are retired already and they're hoping that their investments are going to grow and hang in and give them the money they need to last as long as they do and longer. Some of you have RRSPs, some of you buy stocks directly, some of you are probably day traders. I don't know, maybe, maybe some of you out there do that for fun. I, I don't really have the, uh, the stomach for that kind of stuff, but some of you probably do. Uh, some of you have neither, but you have a pension from a company whose money for the pension comes from money that it has invested, that company has invested. It's a really big, important deal what is happening now and how it's going to affect you. Don Fox is the co-host of Planning Your Financial Future, which you can hear Saturday mornings here on 900 CHML. He is an investor, a financial guru. We'll give him the title guru. I think that's applicable. He joins me now. Don, how are you today? How are yourself? Doing great, thank you. Doing fantastic. And I'm looking at this. I mean, every time there's a change in the White House, um, we ponder and start to wonder what this means for finances for the stock market for other things and and there's reason for that right i mean these these decisions and these moves do cause either ripples or seismic shifts in the market absolutely no uh politics and particularly the american politics because if you look at the u.s stock market it represents 60 percent of the value of all the world's stocks so you know it's, it's only one country but it's really like 60 percent of the money so yes when you have the politics side yeah absolutely when you you saw the world basically cheering on a Biden victory. And normally, you know, you think, okay, maybe they'll raise taxes and all these other things that may have taken place that could have had negative effects. But um, with less control on things, with, a, uh, a, you know, with the Republicans having the Senate, it said, okay, you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get more of a, a reliable, um, predictable president with, uh, with you know, a bit of a grasp on things and they can't, you know, kind of the reins are held in a little bit on some of the policies. So kind of the best of both worlds happened with that. And the stock market last week kind of uh, was clapping its hands in joy. And uh, then you get the news today about uh, uh, Pfizer coming out with a yeah. potential vaccine. So it was a bit of a double whammy in the last, you know, few days. And as far as the markets are concerned. I want to get into all those different things. First of all, though, as you just point out, with 60% of the value or the world stock value in the U.S., if you are someone here in Hamilton or wherever, whoever you're listening from, and you have an RSP or you have stocks or whatever, the chances are almost 100% you're going to have some 
of that value in the U.S. stock market? I would hope so. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting. A lot of people don't have very good geographical risk. So they kind of get kind of the home field advantage, thinking I'll just keep it in Canada, and it's, it's a bias towards Canada or wherever they may be living. And it's definitely not the way to go. You should be geographically diversified. Canada represents, you know, maybe 3% of the world. And it's interesting, if you look at our own Canada pension plan, about 15% of our own Canada pension plan is in Canada. The rest is outside of Canada. So just to put it in perspective, it's, it's not because, you know, they're, they're trying to take, you know, big risks by putting it outside of Canada. No, in fact, the opposite. They're actually trying to reduce people's risks by having it outside of Canada in a more diversified portfolio. And I certainly would recommend all listeners be doing the same for their stock market portion. So it's always that blend, how much should you have in stocks and how much should you have in more, you know, safer alternatives, bonds, fixed income, real estate. All right, so let's say for a second now that you are one of those people who likes to buy your own stocks or choose your own thing. You don't want to necessarily have an advisor, although we can go down that path. Uh, We heard Pfizer. You you pointed to Pfizer today. Big announcement that their uh, possible vaccine is showing great promise in something like 90% of cases. Stock value shot up by 15% today. If you're an investor, do you look at Pfizer right now and say, man, I got to buy into that? Or do you look at it and go, it's already up. And if this 10% turns out to be what happens if this doesn't work it plummets is the risk too great or is it a great thing to get into you know and that's a, that's really a good call i i'm not sure as far as individual stocks go uh, that's what i like having the pros they re- they look at this stuff um, in detail they know them better than their own their own kids they know every aspect of it and again like you said they have this this data it looks very promising for the 94 people that they 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 had very good results for and possibly it could be a great stock. Maybe this one surges, but it doesn't mean that other pharmaceutical companies don't follow suit. Another pharmaceutical company dropped 23% today because the yeah. Alzheimer's drug didn't go as planned. So it's a very volatile area, the pharmaceuticals. Yes, you should have part of your money there. And that's why I always like having the, the money managers trying to determine how much should you have in healthcare and how much of that healthcare percentage should be in Pfizer or whichever company. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's actually interesting. And, and even if you just take the you know, pharmaceuticals away for a second, you take a look at all the stay-at-home stocks, like the Shopify, DocuSign, mm-hmm. Peloton, Zoom, Zoom. Uh, Clorox. You know, Zoom was down 17% today. Peloton down 20% today. Clorox, a very safe stock, down 11% today. You, you know, as a day trader, I, obviously, uh, you said you, you don't stomach it. I don't stomach that. That's why it's, it's so much better to have these type of stocks in, a, in an overall managed portfolio so they can be offset by some of the things that didn't do very well for most of this year. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. You mentioned something just before the break, and I was going to ask you about it anyway. Again, we're talking about things that you may want to look at talk to your agent, your, your investment guide, whatever about, or do yourself. And that all the travel stuff, which has been decimated, Disney and cruise lines and hotels and airlines, all, I mean, one of the things, let me just point one out, Royal Caribbean had a 52-week high in the last 12 months of $135.32 for share price, a 52-week low of $19.25. It was killed. It's up 17%. It's up to, again, to $75. But when you look at all those travel things, 
is this the time to say, man, if I'm going to be investing something, there's a good place to look? Well, speculative. Um, anytime you get into a specific sector and then you get into a specific stock, you just keep piling on more risk. So it gets the, the branches get skinnier and skinnier. So if you say, okay, travel, mm. okay, that includes airlines, that includes uh, leisure travel, which you mentioned here, and that includes all those. Okay, that's a sector. And then you say, saying, okay, what about one airline, like Air Canada? Well, now you're going on to just one company in one sector, which is, you're just taking on more risk. Certainly, there's a very good chance a lot of these companies will do well. There's a huge appetite for people to get back and have a good time and enjoy life and go on a cruise. And those stocks likely will come back. Um, but it's not like this, uh, this vaccine is out today. Um, and, and even then, the results are, are very good to begin with, but there's still some caution. But I have a feeling like most you know, newsworthy events, things kind of over jump their step to begin with, then they fall back, and then they mm -hmm. digest things a bit, and then they come back and say, okay, is this for real? And then you start to see them creep back up or even sometimes go down. So, it, yes, it's a, it's a great, uh, it's a great start, stock, um, certainly way down, and maybe if you were interested in that area, maybe you get a handful of them because it just, you know, hedge your bets, as, as you'd say. Um, a good example would be the airlines because, you know, Air Canada right in our backyard here was $50 back in January. It was down to $16, $14, uh, even as of last week, and it jumped $20. So a huge jump for Air Canada. Um, so that was like a 28% jump today. But are they going to really have all the business traffic that they used to? There may be a lot of people taking vacations because they're dying to. <laughs> but after living with Zoom and Microsoft Teams and virtual meetings, do you really need to fly to Chicago? It's a great point. It's a great point. Let's go to the White House for a minute specifically here, because um, there are some things that people have spotted as red flags and some that people have said are really good news potentially. Uh, let's go to the red flag for just one second. Or uh, Actually, I don't even know if it's a red flag. Um, Joe Biden's economic plan has been costed by different groups at going between 7 and $11 trillion over the next number of years. Does big government spending have a positive or negative impact usually on a stock market? It has a positive impact at first. And what I mean by that, if you add more money to the economy, whether it's they just simply print it and take on more debt, because they don't have the funds there, so they're borrowing those funds. So they add that. So even the COVID money that came in increased the money supply in the U.S. by 31% a massive increase in, in, in the money supply. And that's why certain stocks and things were lifted up a lot from their, well, as we all know, the market dropped when the pandemic just hit. And it creeped its way almost back to even, really up until last week, and things have even hit new highs as of today. So increasing the money supply does help the stock market because people are out there buying their goods because they have extra funds. But on the same token, then you say, okay, at what cost? And right now, we're pretty much the lowest interest rates they can ever be. And so the interest costs are still low. But where it comes to be a problem, if interest rates creep up a bit, then the government has to pay the interest on that debt. Well, and that leads to the other issue that a lot of people have raised as a cautionary note with this is the idea that Biden has said uh, increases coming on corporate taxes. What does that do to stock markets? Well, this is where having a what they expect a, a Republican Senate 
will limit what kind of corporate taxes they're talking about. And so if you look at some of the companies like Apple, Google, that had left a lot of money offshore to save that corporate tax, and then the Republicans have been talking about for years, and you know, I wouldn't necessarily give Trump credit on this, but it was good that he, you know, he, he gave it the okay. But they, the Republicans have been saying, let's lower the tax to get that money back from Ireland or wherever it is over to the U.S. Great move. And that increased the money supply. And then the stock market had a nice one-time kick. So by increasing taxes on those companies, yeah, that actually hurts the stock. But the reason those stocks did so well with the Biden victory was they expect the Senate not to pass a lot of those things. They'd have a tough time getting big tax increases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so you had a a, a limiting factor on some of the Biden wish list. And at the same time, like you said, you have a kind of a a predictable government with Biden. And that's what, um, you know, basically the whole world like to see. Don, we only have a few seconds left, but I'm coming to you now. You're my financial advisor, and I say, you know, it's coming near the end of the year, and oftentimes I'll throw a few thousand dollars extra into my RRSPs because, you know, I want to get my tax refund, but I also think it's a good time. Would you say right now with what's going on, this is a great time to put extra money into your RRSP because it's going to look really good, or do you say, "Mm, caution, it's really, we don't know where it's going right now? Well, I always look at long-term, Scott, and, you know, you love to hit the lows. Everybody loves to say, I'm going to buy at the bottom. And if that was the case, March would have been the bottom when everybody was in panic mode and there was a 30% decrease. I I look at the longer term and say, okay, what is the mix that makes the most sense for you for the next 10 years or so? And, yes, it's it's probably a good time. I really like people that add monthly or even in some cases weekly to their investments, and therefore you're dollar-averaging. All the time so you're buying all the way through through the highs and the lows and you get a, a, an average so is it a bad time or good time right now I, the stock market averages six percent above inflation over the long term so in general it's it's always a better time than waiting and trying to time the market those people usually don't do as well don fox you can hear him on planning your financial future every saturday morning always love having you on don thanks for taking some time today great time with you scott You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We learned that Alex Trebek died at 80, the host of Jeopardy. Uh, And a guy who not only became well-known for all the stuff he became well-known for, but one of my favorite moments ever from the show Cheers. Here, take a listen. Our final Jeopardy answer is Archibald Leach, Bernard Schwartz, and Lucille Lasseur. You wrote down... Who are three people who have never been in my kitchen? No, I'm sorry, that too is wrong. The correct response is, what were the real names of Cary Grant, Tony Curtis, and Joan Crawford? Be that as it may, Alex, those people have never been in my kitchen. You bet it all. Cliff, why would you do something like that? It's because I knew that those people had never been in my kitchen. <laughs> Cliff Clavin. Yeah, Alex Trebek, one of the, uh, I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say one of the best known Canadians, certainly after doing, was it 36 years on Jeopardy every single weeknight and some weekends and, you know, how was he not? Well, six years ago, my next guest became the most famous, I think it's fair to say, the most famous Jeopardy contestant from this city ever and to the best of my knowledge, the only Hamilton Tiger Cat ever to appear on the show, whether active Tiger Cat, which he was, or even retired. I think he's the only one still. Uh, we'll let you, we'll let him remind you 
of how his appearance went, but it put him in a unique position to understand the game and a little bit about Alex Trebek from the inside. Uh, his name is Pete Diakowski. He joins us now. Peter, how are you tonight? Hey, thanks for having me on here. And it's unfortunate circumstances. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, quite a shock, but also uh, just off the top, I'd like to clarify for everybody. I was a bronze medalist and I, had my appearance on Jeopardy. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. You were a bronze medalist on Jeopardy. You finished above zero, which was good because you did get to play Final Jeopardy. That's better than a lot of people have done. Uh, and I should point out uh, that Pete is here on National Louisiana Day, which is very important as a guy who went to Louisiana State University and won a national championship. So it's, it's all falling into place, Pete. And I absolutely knew that was today. Did you? No. <laughs> Luckily, yeah, it's okay. That wasn't one of the uh, the answers on Jeopardy. Everyone, I think, pretty much acknowledges that Alex Trebek was a perfect host for that show. Why, why was that? What was it about him that made him so good for that particular show? Well, he was the the perfect game show host. Period. But especially for that program, I think because you know, of course, the the subject matter. It's, it's a trivia program. It's it's a very intelligent show, but at the same time, trivia can't be too difficult or, or uh, too too remote. It has to be accessible. And so he was was the ideal. He's a very intellectual man, very smart man. But at the same time, he never really seemed. And there's a few great great uh, highlights where maybe it's a little bit different. But he never really seemed condescending. He never talked down to anybody, and he also did a really good job. He, of course, knew every single answer, but he didn't seem like a know-it-all. And I, I think he did a great job of not alienating the massive network television audience crowd watching, who, um, for the most part, were never going to be on, on Jeopardy and still loved and, and watched the, the show. So he did an incredible, uh, incredible job in that role. And he, he really was perfect. I, I always wondered that whether he, I, I'm sure he didn't really know every answer. I'm sure he knew a lot of them. I'm sure he did, but he, he sold it. I mean, I, I know he did prep work and stuff, but you, when you watched, you really believed that he knew the answer to every question. Well, he, uh, and when I was on, he actually, he joked about it. You know, he's got the, uh, the, uh, the earpiece in, so he, he gets to be the smartest person on the show, but he, he did say that he has gotten very good over the years, but, he, he himself will say he's not nearly a, as good as um, as their camps who come through, but I'm sure he could sit down at Trivial Pursuit in just about any household and clean up. I, I always wanted to see him compete on the show. I don't know if he ever in any capacity did, even in a celebrity Jeopardy or something. I don't imagine so. I never saw it. But, but I, I also think you're right, Pete. I think that something you said a moment ago, for this kind of show to work, it can't be so hard that nobody has a chance at home or on the set to get an answer. But the flip side is, I don't think it can be so easy that everybody gets every answer. There has to be that. I think this the secret here was the, if you got one of the answers, especially if you got a final Jeopardy answer, there was a sense of accomplishment that you had that kept people coming back because you felt like you'd achieved something. Well, the best trivia is when you get stumped and then you're given the answer, you slap yourself on the head and say, I knew that, or I should have known that. That's, that's what makes good trivia, because you can you know, comb the encyclopedia back when people used to have those things and find <laughs> some unanswerable little tidbit of, of fact. That's no fun. 
So great trivia makes you slap yourself in the head. So I should have known that. And then he does. He did. Well, he did a great job of, of you know, reinforcing that that feeling. So it, it was a very difficult, very difficult. I'll tell you from firsthand. It's tough to win, but a lot of people did win, and a lot of people got on. And and everyone who watches at home has the feeling that oh, I could have done better than that. Or yes. I, I could yep. get on there one day, and that's. That's that, the beauty of, of the, the work that he did on there. And I will say this too. Uh, there was an incredible precision uh, with which he did what he did because I can't remember ever seeing him stumble over a clue. I mean, to, to give that many and to never seem to bobble one, um, I can tell you doing this show every day, I bobble every night. And to do it that clean, he was, he was remarkable. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Pete, when you, when you were there, when you were on there, and again, it was 2014, I think June, if I recall correctly, was it intimidating? You're, you're a guy who's been through a lot and you've seen a lot. When he walks out on the stage to begin, is it intimidating? Oh, it's, uh, absolutely. I'm, I'm not shy at all. I'm pretty comfortable in front of crowds, even wearing spandex pants and, and all that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a very unique arena, and it starts... Actually, it starts with an interesting shock. The voice, Johnny Gilbert, the announcer, the one that, that you never see him on camera, but he's got this warm, rich, resonant voice. And if you've watched the show, uh, you've known this voice all your life. Seeing him in person, it's, that was really cool. But at the same time, that's the first cue that, oh, this is, uh, you know, this is, something, uh, this is something different. And you're up there on the, uh, on the set, the lights are on, they're bright, they've got all the, uh, all the cameras, and there's... Uh, and there's Alex. It's um, it's an incredible, incredible experience. I, I was fired up, maybe a little too fired up. But well, I, and, um, and for people to remember, I mean, you're a guy who's played a national college championship game in front of nearly a hundred thousand people plus millions on TV. Like you're not a guy who is easily thrown off, as you say, by crowds. No, no, no. I mean, I'm I'm pretty good at uh, uh, pretty good at adapting. But this was. Uh, and, and this is something I've heard since from other people who've been on the um, who've been on the the program. Uh, it's you know it's it's a one it really is a once in a lifetime experience. I don't let you back on. I don't think you win. But um, it was actually though he was a calming presence, and it was really neat uh, during the uh, the uh, incoming from the, the first commercial break when you you talk and he had all of his um, favorite. Tiger Cats when he when he was a kid because he grew up a fan of the Tiger Cats. You know, he grew up in Sudbury and the Tiger Cats were his team, and that was a, that was really really cool to have a, a chat with him on air about the cats. Did you did during the commercial breaks? Is that when you're saying like when yeah, the commercial I, breaks I, would happen? Did you get to converse with him at all, or was it very sort of we're going to stop everything now and we'll come back? At, so during the commercial breaks, it's just a. It's just a quick commercial break. It's all filmed in, in real time. But at the end, you you all mill out, and, and you may see when they're rolling the credits, you're milling around and chit-chatting with Alex, and you, you really are speaking with him. And, and he, he's a very interesting guy. He, of course, talked, um, talked football and, and, uh, and the Tiger Cats. And his, uh, his knee injury, he, t- he says he tore his ACL in, in high school. I never even knew it um, until he was getting his knee checked out, you know, in the past decade, sometimes for the replacement, they, they informed him of it. And, you know, he's, he, he's an avid skier uh, for a lot of his life, but it was really interesting having that, you know, he, he does this, 
uh, five times a day, twice a week. They would film a whole week in one day. So he would do five episodes back to back and then another week's worth the next day. And then he'd, he'd be off for 12 days. So not a bad lifestyle, but really, uh, really warm, uh, engaging guy to talk to. And he made me feel a lot better about losing. <laughs> well, b- finishing third, you mean, getting that bronze medal. Yeah, finishing, um, yeah, winning a bronze, yeah. <laughs> you, you, you took a picture with him. People can go online, just type in Google Diakowski and Je- Jeopardy and they'll find it. The picture, it's been played everywhere. Do you have that up in your house somewhere? I do have, I do have a print of it uh, in my office, but uh, that was... You know, that was a highlight as well. So I, you know, I gave him a, you know, gave him a big, uh, big Hamilton hug. Because you've met, and I mean, people know this through your opportunities in football. You've met some other big name celebrities. I remember one that stands out as you were playing in BC one night and you get to give a, a Ticat sweater to Gene Simmons from Kiss. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's unique, I guess. Do you have other celebrity pictures up in your house or is there, or is it just Alex Trebek? He's the uh, he's the biggest. He's you know loomed the largest in my imagination and then in, in life too. But uh, he's a giant, incredible Canadian, and, and you know I think possibly if he consider recognition, he's probably recognized by ninety eight percent of people in North America. He's probably one of yep. the most recognizable people in the world. Yeah, and one of the very few people that you just have to whistle a theme song to and you would immediately connect him with that. I mean, there's not many people that have their own song that uh, we played it at the top here. But all right, Pete, we just have a few seconds left here and I want to know what you learned from that time. The research department here at the Scott Radley Show has been hard at work today and has found every single question. The uh, the Ivy League... uh... The Ivy League mascot named after a religious <laughs> denomination is the Penn Quakers. So the final Jeopardy question, team nicknames of the eight Ivy League schools include four animals, three colors, and this Christian denomination. Yes, Quakers, uh, you did get that in retrospect, not so much the day of. Um, oh. But I have found all of the other ones, and I can't remember which ones you got correct or not. Let me just throw two of them at you and see what you've learned here. These are questions that you answered. You buzzed in and you got to answer on Jeopardy. We'll see if you can still get them because it's been six years. The Brits have a sense of this amusing word and insert you to make it six letters. What word is that? Is that later? Humor. Humor? Oh, oh, it's just, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, let's see. One, reading it. I, I, I didn't read it as well as Alex Trebek, certainly. Uh, spent 16 years in the KGB retiring as lieutenant colonel. Would that be uh, Vladimir Putin? See, there you go. And you buzzed in first, so yes. It's, uh, you see, you oh, learned. No, it wasn't in the form of a question, though. I, 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 it wasn't. I said, would that be? So there you go. Well, it, you know what? I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you anyway. But um, Pete Dykowski, listen, I would love always chatting with you about this topic. I know it's not quite football, but the, never has a man on the Ticats been uh, with so many things to talk about, whether it's the Canada's smartest man or Jeopardy or running for office or whatever else. Love the time. Thanks for taking a few minutes today. Hey, thanks for having me on. Always, always a pleasure. Although, you know, would have rather um, different circumstances, but, uh, you know, Mr. Trebek is an icon and he's going to leave an incredible legacy because people are hoping to be watching the reruns for many, many decades. Absolutely. Pete Dyakowski, really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
Let me bring in Don Robertson. He is the owner and operator of the Dundas Real McCoys. He runs ComChoice Realty in Dundas. Uh, you see his face as you come up out of Dundas, up towards Hamilton on the hill there, right in the bend of the road, is a giant version of Don Robertson, in case you weren't sure what he looked like. If you're driving right now, you can swing by and see it. It's a big ad. Uh, he joins me now. Don, how are you today? <laughs> Good, Scott. The, the billboard's down. Is it down? Well, it's not what happened? Forever. You, well, I only rented it for a month. I mean, people can only take so much. See, I thought it was up there. I, it was longer than a month it was up there for. No, nah, it's been up a couple of times. But it's, it's, oh, okay. uh, you rent them rent them for a month. I didn't. Uh, I think what they do is they, they invite me back so they can appreciate the impact of billboard advertising. And it helps their sales, you know, outside of that. <laughs> That's just my guess. Well, the next time then, if so, I, I thought it was always up there. So now you got to start like thinking of new creative things you could do, like, you know, new photos and new poses and things. Yeah, that's a really good idea. <laughs> Don Robertson in a, in a grass skirt and a, you know, in a lay or Don Robertson in, you know, whatever. I mean, there's, there's a million different possibilities on a monthly, just every month have something that goes with that month. In February, have you dressed as Cupid, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying try to get people to call me so I can help them with the real estate needs, not put them off life altogether. In October, you know, wearing lederhosen and, and doing the heel slap dance for Oktoberfest. There's, there's a million we could do here. Well, you As Santa Claus? Them, we'll give them all the work. Yeah, there we, we go. All padding. right. Well, keep, keep it in mind. When people are driving by, if they see some of these popping up, you'll know where you heard the idea first and who should get credit for it. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> or blame or blame either one. Um, Don, we got a lot of stuff to get to uh, today. I, 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 we have been talking last hour about um, Alex Trebek passing away. The other great Canadian, I think great Canadian is a fair description. Certainly memorable Canadian who passed away on the weekend was Howie Meeker, who died when he was at 97. Uh, rookie of the year, Toronto Maple Leaf player, Stanley Cup champion, broadcaster, um, when you think of Howie Meeker, and I know, you know, you're in the age group, I'm in the age group that remembers Howie Meeker really, really well. What do you think of when you think of Howie Meeker? Excitement, I think. Um, obviously I don't remember when he played, but just his excitement and enthusiasm. And he was one of the very first really, uh, analysts of the game. I mean, I am old enough to remember when Ward Cornell would interview guys between periods and it was, you know, very two guys sitting there in suits talking about hockey. Howie was so animated and the people that I know that know him say that his enthusiasm with Golly G and G Wiz was just replacing hockey talk and uh, he couldn't be totally himself or he would have been on long. Yeah. It would have been entertaining, but he wouldn't have been on long. And uh, so I think he really was starting the evolution of hockey commentary and being able to say things. He'd use diagrams and say, here's why everybody's doing this. You know, he was first the first true analyst of the game and the guy that between periods could talk about specifics and why people were doing things. He played the game. He was entertaining and always chock full of energy, right? And he was one of those guys that 
some might have suggested he had a bit of annoying voice, but one you couldn't forget or get out of your head. And the things he brought to the table, I think, probably paved the way for guys like Don Cherry and a different type of intermission. So he was fun and knowledgeable. He was, yeah, and and you know when you say that he was one of the precursors or one of the early influences on hockey analysis or hockey broadcasting, I think you can go even beyond that. I I, I don't know how much American TV was watching Hockey Night in Canada to get ideas, but I, I baseball certainly didn't have that I recall back in the early seventies. Guys like that who were trying to be really excited and lighthearted and that kind of thing on, on, on games. It was pretty dry and pretty serious. And uh, basketball wasn't even an issue at that point. Basketball was essentially a non-entity, but the NFL, I mean, Monday night football was around, but you know, I, I do wonder how much other American networks were watching and getting some ideas. Cause I, I, I think he was much more of a trailblazer than he gets credit for even. Well, I think he was an entertainer, right? I mean, in, in the old days, when, again, referring back to Ward Cornell and stuff like that, the intermissions weren't really designed or the the people on the intermission, first intermission, second intermission, weren't really there to be entertaining. The game was to entertain us, right? And so there would be a subtle analysis. So expanding a little bit on your theme, if the Americans were watching Howie Meeker, was that really where... Howard Cosell and Don Meredith came from on Monday night football when you could actually provide entertainment between the boring plays, you know, and, and when the action wasn't going on, it didn't seem to be prohibited anymore to actually try and entertain the audience and captivate them. And I'm sure advertisers liked it, right? Because there was clearly more commercials during the intermissions than there were during the play. They didn't really have, timeouts they didn't have tv timeouts like they do now so if they could retain the audience with and captivate them with a howie meeker or howard cosell then they can sell that so then it became more interesting to the networks because they're going you know people really like howie and they're going to stay to watch and there's been lots of talk that the most expensive 30-second ads on Hockey Night in Canada were all around Coach's Corner. They always had a sponsor, right, whether it was Budweiser towards the end or uh, Coors Light or anybody. Cars wanted to sponsor Coach's Corner. So he kind of revolutionized uh, intermissions, provided entertainment, and was probably – Probably a trailblazer for a lot of that. Yeah, I, I, you know, as you point out, I, I'm not sure Don Cherry exists in hockey. I mean, Don Cherry probably finds his way in anyway, but certainly Howie Meeker was a very different, but in some ways a similar precursor by not being so staid and sobering and stoic and allowing the game to be excite, exciting through his voice. And like, that's not a shot. I mean, certainly, you know, Foster Hewitt, the game was wildly exciting through his voice, but it was the game itself. It's not the, the analysts that hockey had had before were not like Howie Meeker. They, they just weren't. And, well, and I, I did, I did read what you said, by the way, those words that he used like golly gee willikers and stuff. He did say that 
that was a replacement for hockey dressing room language that he recognized very quickly would, as you say, have not kept him on the air very long if those had popped out. No, and he made it acceptable, right? So hence the term trailblazer and for guys like Cherry. And again, the, the, the mere fact that it was, it was long overdue to make the intermissions far more entertaining than, so what do you think of the first period? You know, you had an assist and uh, it was a pretty tight checking game. And, you know, it was just all scripted and how we didn't do that. And you're right. And I, as I mentioned, it gave Don Cherry an opportunity to have a platform that gave, uh, oh, it gave so well, many. Mike Milbury, it, lots of guys. Mike yeah, Milbury Mike. is in, you know, all those guys that do that now, uh, I think have, have Howie Meeker in some way to thank because, let's remember one other thing, Don, he, Don, Howie Meeker started back in the early, early 70s. If he, if his enthusiasm or lightheartedness or whatever you want to call it had been a giant flop, I'm not sure what happens then. No, it, it, I think it evolved into what it is today, Scott, but it may have been retarded by an entire decade. Like it may have been just set back 10, 15 years. And uh, how we had the uh, NCBC had, had the, uh, you know, the gumption to let them go ahead and do it. And it just created a whole different atmosphere for between periods and post-game stuff, like you know, a lot of things got a lot more interesting when you gave somebody a bit of a bit of an opportunity to expand it. And Howie was right. I mean, he had the diagrams and the telestrator. You know, was, uh, the telestrator. Um, I remember golfing with Brian McFarland on more than one occasion, who introduced Peter Puck, mm-hmm. and and it said to me. Uh, not just me, there was obviously a group of us in force. And he says, you know, without Howie Meeker doing what he did, probably, probably Peter Puck doesn't work in the U.S. Because Brian McFarland came up with Peter Puck. And Brian McFarland was very creative, as was his father who wrote numerous Hardy Boy books. You know, Brian wasn't just a hockey um uh, a journalist. He was a creative guy and they brought Peter Puck back, boy, about 10 years ago, right? Because, but in the U S they used Peter Puck to explain offsides. If you remember the NBC or whatever network it was on when they started producing hockey, Peter Puck would say, well, here's what an offside is, but it was the creativity of, uh, uh, of Howie Meeker that let those things be more acceptable. So from that aspect, we lost a legend and a pioneer in hockey broadcasting and sports broadcasting. Um, yeah, Leslie McFarland, by the way, who wrote under the pen name of Franklin W. Dixon, who did write a lot of the Hardy Boys stuff, as you say, Brian McFarland's dad. You know, one of the other things when I thought about Howie Meeker on the weekend, because I was, I was very young when Howie Meeker was, you know, really doing his thing, but I was... It was the perfect age and maybe, you know, and Don, maybe, maybe that skews my view on this, but I, w- I got back to thinking about the intermissions of hockey games and you had Howie Meeker's hockey school, which I watched a couple of clips of today on YouTube. And I got to tell you, Howie Meeker was hilarious because he's teaching these kids. It was filmed at his summer camps and then shown in 15 minute intermission clips and Howie Meeker, unlike today, where if you were doing that with a bunch of 
10 year old kids, you'd be so delicate with telling them how to say, get over here, defenseman, hurry up. You're being too slow. And you'd pick out kids and go, why are you always last? And I mean, it was hilariously blunt, but it was great. You had that, you had Peter Puck, as you say, and you had showdown, which was a great intermission thing. And I look back and I go, maybe I was just young and maybe it seemed better, but intermission seems so much more fun back in the day rather than what they do now. Well, they were. They were creative. Now, in fair, in defense of what they did in yesteryears and were creative, they didn't have 15 different angles, right? I mean, the replays, I mean, it was exciting when all of a sudden you could see a play and a replay in slow motion. I mean, I'm dating myself, but pardon me, that's all they had to work with. And now they have so much more and they can get so much more entertaining. And I'm not sure that going back to yesteryear couldn't have been almost as fun because it was more basic, but it is what it is. And, you know, there's, there's less time. Um, Intermissions are kind of almost run like Sesame street because that's the way people are today. They, want to get on Twitter, they want to get on Instagram, they've only got 15 seconds, and if you can't entertain them in 15 seconds, you're going to lose them. So that's why the segments bounce back and forth. Um, uh, Don Cherry was much watched, but a lot of them now, you see, they bounce around like Sesame Street because people today and the young audience that they think are the ones that spend the money, I think the older audience have more money to spend, but that's not apparently what the research tells them, that um, you know, it's just, it bounces all over the place. It's entertaining, but I think people are getting up and going and making a ham sandwich or grabbing a beer versus what they did in the old days and sat there and they just wondered what Howie Meeker was going to tell them. The uh, interesting I, I, thing is he did all that, Scott, wearing those blue blazers. Yep. And yep. the logo that looked like the Vancouver Canucks hockey stick when they came in the NHL. That was an accomplishment. When you could get, when you could see Dave Hodge and Howie Meeker perform and do their shtick and do their performance in those powder blue blazers, which were almost the same color as the 1987 Moscow model sweaters, you were really good. I, I the intermissions today, I, I, I just don't know that. It's easier, I'm sure. It's probably less, well, I don't know if it's less expensive because the talent who that is on there is being paid well. But, you know, uh, 10 minutes or 15 minutes of breaking down what happened in the first period, I am positive that if you gave people an option and said, we're going to go back to a version of Showdown, for example, people would not miss that 10 minutes of analysis of breaking down who was offside or wasn't or whether it was a penalty. I, I, I really, and again, maybe it's just my youth speaking that I feel fondly about those days more than now, because we always do, that's natural. But I really believe, you know what, you 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 find some of those, it, not a repeat, but a new version of some of those things. Boy, and, and, and that's, you know, that's again, where Howie Meeker and Brian McFarlane and those guys, you know, they shone. They really shone when it was a chance to do something completely different, whether it was the hockey school or Peter Puck or whatever. I, I you know, I'm... Because you're right, Don. I mean, the proof, forgive the cliche, the proof is in the pudding. If you, if the period ends and you say, I'm going to get up and grab a sandwich and make something to eat and go have a pee and do whatever else, as opposed to, man, I can't move because this intermission is great. That's, that's, 
that to me is pretty indicative of something. I think I think when Don Cherry was on, there was a better chance that somebody's going to go make a sandwich and have a beer. I'm not going to talk about peeing, but I'm going to say go have a sandwich and grab a beer. There was a lot better chance they'd do that with three minutes to go so they could watch Don Cherry. I remember being in Maple Leaf Gardens uh, when I was when we used to work when the Brantford Smoke used to work with the Toronto Maple Leafs through an affiliation and being in the press box and being absolutely astonished and amazed how all the sports writers and everybody in the press box just took that five minutes and stopped and everybody watched the TVs to see what Don Cherry was going to say. And I don't care how veteran uh, a, a scribe they were or radio reporter, everybody needed to know what Don Cherry was going to do and say. So the intermissions are became far more entertaining and maybe less less entertaining today, but maybe that's what everybody wants. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. There was a piece in the Toronto Star this week that was fascinating. It's a guy who works in the Leafs analytics department. And the discussion is that the Leafs are probably going to, now they haven't locked in and Sheldon Keefe is not quoted in this. And that was specifically pointed out that Sheldon Keefe is not quoted in this, the head coach of the Leafs. But the idea is the Leafs may well try this year at times coming up a lineup that would have two forwards and three defensemen on the ice at a time theoretically because it would allow for more puck control and better defensive coverage and you know what you've got these four high 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 priced forwards get them on the ice as much as you possibly can and you know it's 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 been done this kind of thing has been done sort of in soccer obviously they have more players in the field but with a more defensive posture and guys jumping up into the play what would you think if the Leafs all of a sudden started lining up with three defensemen and two forwards as a regular thing it may, be a, it may create a great conversation on a new way to lose. I mean, if you've got, <laughs> like, defense hasn't been their their um, brand, right? Offense is their brand. So when you take away one of your forwards, I don't know how that actually makes your offense any better. When I mean, if you had... Um, Paul Coffey, Dennis Potvin, and Kevin Lowe. I mean, if you had the right defense and that was your hallmark and you got thinking, you know, as long as they can't score, we'll win eventually. That's an interesting way to look at things. But the Leafs are not known for their defense. So adding a defenseman is a great thing as long as you can still have three forwards. But I don't think they're going to permit that. So I, I'm not convinced that's exactly the right formula. I mean, you can change the configuration of how you play defense. And I've always been long, a big advocate of, you know, we talk about it in the room. Like, don't dump the puck in the other guy's end because they can't score if we have the puck. So if we've got the puck and you're talking about puck control, you're going to win more often than not, as long as you don't give it to them at, at unopportune times. But as long as you, you've got the puck, they can't score it. So I've never thought it was a brilliant idea to dump the puck in the other guy's end and then rush in and try and take it off them. I think if you've got it, keep it. 
So if you've got three defensemen and you think, and maybe the Russians did that in the 72 series, boy, I'm ever dating myself tonight with how we meet her and this stuff, but when, <laughs> like the Russians, you know, uh, I was going to say Toronto, but Canada would end up with like 36 shots, 41 shots. The Russians would have 12, 14, but the Russians only shot when they had a chance to score. They thought it was really a good idea to keep a hold of the puck. And if you remember, the Russians back in the 70s and 80s, they always tried to keep the puck. It was very frustrating for our guys and a frustrating way to watch the game because that's not the way we played it. And then we started changing how we played because they started realizing, you know, if we have it, they can't get it. So you don't see very often where they dump it in anymore, which speaks to don't give them the puck. So if you've only got two forwards, I would suggest to you they would be pretty easy to cover in the offensive zone. I am not an analytics guy. I believe in guys are playing well, you put them on, things are working well, you don't change them. And maybe I'm old school, but I think that's a better way to play the game. And I'm not sure or convinced that could work all the time. You could play some games with that. But if all of a sudden you've got John Tavares as your third defenseman who's never played defense before in his life, does that mean they're probably going to address 10 defensemen and fewer No, forwards? because, that would, because that the would idea, give your top four guys more rights. The idea here would be that literally you're not going to move forwards to defense. You're literally going to be playing like Tavares and like, oh, Matthews and Marner as your two forward pair, like a defense pair, and then three legitimate defensemen or um, Tavares and uh, uh, what's his name? The Swedish. Um, um, anyway, uh, Nylander. Look, Nylander. I, I, I can see the benefit of this under certain circumstances. And one of the things that the Leafs had a lot of trouble last year in the shortened season and even the year before was in holding on to leads. They would get a lead and then the lead would occasionally slip away. I could I could see merit in this, assuming it works and you're not getting in each other's way, and you can figure out the positioning. I could really see the merit of this. You get a two or three goal lead going into the third period, and you switch over to this. That I could see, and plus, then you're also going to take one of your less effective forwards off the ice all the time and put someone in who is going to back check and going to be on defense. I, that I could see as being usable. So, are you going to? And I, I don't disagree with that. And. I mean, the trap came from when I played junior. The, well, that's we, what this will be. We used to, we used that's to what this would end up being. Yeah. We used to send one guy. We dump it in and send one guy deep. And you have two guys back at the blue line, two guys at the center ice. That became called the trap. Oh, and that's okay. But here's the challenge with that. So you have to have a coach with a conviction. Uh, it's a Toronto Maple Leafs and, you, you, you know, the, the Swedish kid, Nylander, that you had mentioned. So what you have to be prepared to do towards the end of the second period is sit him and sit your forwards who are faulty defensively and add a third defenseman, which probably means your third and fourth line guys who are far more apt to be defensive oriented and prone and start sitting. You can start sitting uh, Nylander or a, Elander, I mentioned him, Marner and Austin Matthews, because now your third and fourth line guys who will pay the price, work hard defensively, and add that third defenseman, 
You can sell that to the fans. I mean, it might work, but boy, it would be an odd game to watch when all you're trying to do is stop them. Because you're not you trying th- to score anymore, right? You're just trying to win. That's right. Do you so think, though, your Don? Defensive uh, liabilities sit down, and they're generally your best offensive guys. Do you think now, and I, I really don't know the answer to this. I thought I knew the answer to this, but I really don't think in, that I do. Do you think Leaf fans would care? Do, is, is it, do the Leaf fans want to win regardless, or do you want to win a certain way? And would Leaf fans be okay with having a team that wins a lot and moves deep into the playoffs if it means transitioning for half the game into a full-on Jacques Lemaire trap system? Would they be okay with that, even with the firepower they have? Do they just want to win so badly that we don't care how you do it as long as you do it? No, I don't think so. I mean, listen, you're talking to a guy who remembers seeing uh, George Armstrong in black and white shoot the puck into the net in 67 to win it. So there are multiple generations now who have not seen the Toronto Maple Leafs win. And I would tell you that um, I'm not a fanatic fan, but there are a ton of them out there. And if they thought playing two goaltenders or goalers, as I like to refer to them (laughs) in net at the same time, so they could win, they wouldn't give a damn. If the rules would permit to put Anderson and Hutchison in net at the same time, so they could win, I don't think the Leafs give a damn how they win as long as they win a Stanley cup. So I, I, the answer Don, is I've obvious. as crazy as this is, I've I've wondered about even that. Now, no one's going to do that, but when you get up by a couple of goals, I've always wondered why you don't have a defenseman. Seriously, if you've got two goal lead and you've got a team that's pouring it on and you're clinging in the last two or three minutes of a game, why you don't put a defenseman behind Anderson and put a second guy in the way? Just a, they still could score, but it's just another body that the puck potentially could hit before it goes in. And I know it sounds I'll goofy, remember. but it's but if you're look if if you're that desperate, and I think you're right. I think the Leafs and Leaf fans are. You do at that point anything to win, and no one's going to do it because who? What defenseman is going to volunteer to be the guy who gets pinged off behind the goalie? But you know, you throw a little extra, yeah, you throw some heavier equipment on them. So. Um, I don't know what the analytics guy said. I, I know you said 3D and two forwards. But once you get in your own zone, things don't change that much. Right? Like you can't have defensemen in each corner watching the back door, um, trying to protect things around the net. If, 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 that, if that third D, as we would call him, is standing in front of the net and nobody's there, Actually, what would have to happen is you would have to default back into the same type of defense you would have if you had three forwards and two defensemen. It's only effective when the rush is on, as far as I'm concerned. Because once you get in the defensive zone, like if you've got that third guy standing in front of Anderson and the center's out floating around deep in the slot and he's going, that's a forwards job. Well, there's no, you only got two, and those guys are watching the D, the defenseman. How are you going to protect that guy? So that system almost assuredly has to revert back to the old five-on-five system. It only is effective coming through the neutral zone, which is almost like the trap. It's all. It would be. It would have. It would become the trap. The only other thing I would say is that the one thing that it would prevent, 
and we've seen this with the Leafs a bunch of times in recent years, it would, you would think, prevent the possibility where the defensive structure breaks down and a guy is left alone in front of the net because you would have a defenseman who doesn't have a responsibility to chase a guy behind the net or go into the corner to get it. You could have a guy just positioned right in front, which theoretically would prevent those breakdowns and leaving guys wide open. However, yeah, however, nothing, nothing, there's no that, guarantee. That system would fail in short order unless you had it sorted out, right? And, and perhaps they can. I mean, I, I kind of really like the game the way it is now. I mean, I, I've liked it all the way through. I like the broad street bullies. I like the, you know, the Gretzky era uh, where, you know, games were eight, six. It's just a nice, real nice game and people try and change it. And they do. Uh, the Philadelphia Flyers changed it in the seventies when they beat the snot out of anybody that was near the puck on them. And, you know, everybody had to have tough guys and each era is different. I, this is a bit of a quantum leap. I, before the Toronto Maple Leafs would probably institute that, I think you would see the Toronto Marlies give it a whirl just to see how it happens. Because Absolutely. If there is, the if job, there is age. On the, job, on the job learning in the NHL can be very expensive to coaches and GMs. Yeah, if there is an American Hockey League season and if the Marlies do play, and we don't know that yet, although let's let's hope that that's the case. But um, yeah, I, I think absolutely you would see it. And I do remember, I mean, one of the things that we see all the time now, Don, with most teams, if you look at the power play, the way teams are generally setting up now is they've got two defensemen and two forwards off to the sides and a guy between the hash marks, between the face-off circles, they're calling him the bumper, Tavares plays there a lot and he's getting the puck and then feeding it back. That's something that, that Guy Boucher brought into the game really when he was here in Hamilton and PK Subban was the guy who, when he was with Hamilton was the bumper. And now Boucher is gone, but an awful lot of teams liked what they saw in that idea and have either used it or tweaked it somehow to fit their system. Would the same thing happen? Here's the, here's the reality. And we've seen this in hockey all along. If the Leafs or any other team brought in this two forward, three defense system for a period of time, and it might be a few games, it might be a few weeks, it might be a few months, it would probably confuse the other teams because they haven't seen it before if it was applied in a unique way. But it wouldn't take all that long, and I'm saying a few months at the most, before the other coaches breaking down the film said, okay, here's how we get around it. And you know, then you're back to square one. R.I.P. Roger Nielsen. He'd do it in about two games. He'd see it twice and go, all right, here's how we're going to fix that. And you have to give it a full, you know, a, a full opportunity to see if it works or it doesn't work. You couldn't do it for two weeks and, and um, abandon it. But what you could do is you could, you could actually incorporate it into your repertoire so that teams wouldn't know what you were doing any given night. Right. And right. we have, we have, uh, you know, and, and found success with it. I mean, you don't actually have to have a team strategy, right? Like you're, you're going to have one line playing one way and another line playing another way, because I find that if you try and just implore a strategy team wide, you've got guys doing things outside their comfort zone. So if you've got a real quick line, uh, uh, you know, uh, on your club, and they can really press the defense, 
you know, your, your next line out may not have that skill set. So what I think is most effective is, is that you let each line play a system that you've set up for them. And in this case, uh, if you were going to try and work that out and, and find it to be effective, you, the other guys just don't know when you're going to do it. I mean, you may not do it in the first period, but you may do it in the second period. Element of surprise, for sure. Could work. So, so you've got to make the other coaches actually react right on the bench to counteract it, which would be more difficult. And I don't think I'm overthinking the game because there's, there's, there actually may be a guy out there smarter than me about this stuff. Nah, I'm never. Sure. No, 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 no. It couldn't, couldn't yeah, be the case. You're probably right. Especially when that sign goes up and you're dressed as Cupid, no one would ever think that you would be uh, not the smartest guy in hockey. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Don, we only have a couple minutes here. Um, the Masters tournament starts this Thursday. Uh, not the usual time. Seems very weird to be saying that. Are you excited? I mean, I'm, I'm going to watch, but I'm I'm sort of haltingly excited about this. I, I, it just, it seems like it's a tradition that we're tinkering with. I, I almost would have been happier just to say, let's just wait a year and come back in April. But what do you think about this? Well, the Masters is the Masters, right? And the NBA and all the major sports have tried to get a champion for 2020. And I don't think it's unfair for the Masters to try. Um, it's a bit of a tradition and they're putting all the big ones in play. Yeah. I, and it is, I mean, it, look, the people at Augusta national are making a fortune that they wouldn't have made with the TV re- revenues and everything they're, they're losing. There's no fans, there's no merchandise sales, but you know, they're not, that, that was huge money that the golf course loses if they don't host the tournament. And I understand about you know the players who have qualified and everything else. I, I don't know. I, I'm going to watch. I'm, I'm not not. I'm not not going to watch. It just seems. I don't know. The Masters is like the start of spring and everything else. This just seems too weird, almost. I think they'll have it again in April if they can. Oh, they are. No, they, they are. I, I mean, they're going to double dip, and you know what? We have a lot of sports traditions and classics that are important to us. You know, the All Star games aren't important. But the World Series is finding a Stanley Cup champion, an NBA championship, Major League champ, you know, Major League Baseball. Those things are all important for the psyche, and we need that stuff. And the other thing that makes it worth worth watching for me, anyway, I think they should do it. I'm not quite offended by it at all. I'm not but, offended. Not offended. It just feels very weird. That's all. It just feels it weird. Of course, it's weird. I mean. We were watching Stanley Cup playoffs in July. That's, I mean, that's weird. Like that, <laughs> that's... like that ad on TV. Your pants are weird. There's yeah. a lot of things that are weird. <laughs> all the guys right? at the Eight Masters. Dinner, your pants are weird. So all the guys at the Masters should have to wear pants like that while they play, just to fit in with the feeling of the whole thing. So they, so we all know it's weird. But, but, but the, but the truth is that it, it's important to golf. It's one of the majors. And the other thing that I really like is that your friend and mine, Mackenzie Hughes, tied for the lowest score on Sunday with a 63. And he and will be in I the Masters in April. He will be this year and next year. because No, no, not this year. FedEx he's not, he, no, he's not playing this tournament this week, but he's playing next, next year in April. I thought he already qualified for this year's. For, for next year. Yeah, no, no. So, um, oh, crap, really? 
Yeah, yeah. Well, un- unless they change something. It appears as if I was wrong. You should mark that, that, that down. That doesn't. I am. I'm making a little note. Today is the day. Never happened before. Don Robertson, <laughs> listen. Really appreciate the time. Thanks as always for doing this this week. All right, Scott. I'll come up with something for the billboard. Thank, Thank you. you. Yes, I, I look forward to seeing it. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.